you are listening to Comes a Time with Oteil Burbridge and Mike Fenoya. If you're digging the podcast, do these guys a favor and review and subscribe. It means a lot. Be sure to follow the pod on social media, YouTube, and if you're joining for bonus episodes and exclusive content, go to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get on the bus. And now, here's Mike and Oteil. Hey folks, welcome back. Comes a time is back. Yes, indeed. and we did it big today, huh, Otil? Yes, you know we did one episode that was just me and Mike, but for our first episode to have a guest, of course, we went to our favorite Paul Stamets. You know him, <laughs> you love him, the legendary mycologist, and his partner, Dr. Pam Crisco who I wanted to focus on, too, in this episode. She is the medical lead for the Roots to Thrive program, and she's also a founding board member of the Psychedelic Association of Canada. Um, She's a physician. She's also a clinical instructor at UBC, which I'm pretty sure is University of British Columbia, Columbia, and adjunct professor at VIU, which is Vancouver Island University. She was also a firefighter for eight years. Wow. One of the coolest people on earth. I call her the Paul Stamets of Canada, Dr. Pam Crisco. What an amazing conversation, right? Yeah. Well, this is one of those ones that obviously could go on for weeks if uh, we had the time. But uh, yeah, we. I, I was happy to hear their take on uh, the psychedelic conference that uh, I was lucky enough to attend and you'll be at next year. Um, there's so much info and so much insight and so much of it is so personalized to every user and every it's it's amazing it's literally like we're watching a renaissance we're we're knee deep in a a renaissance like at the moment and uh they are the you know the vanguard the paint suppliers (laughs) (laughs) yeah for sure so you guys enjoy um we're back with a bang now folks uh, we're here on Pantheon Network. We're very honored to be a part of uh, this new network that we're in. It, it's been around forever, but new home for us. So uh, head over and check us out. Uh, we've got all of our information at our bio link on uh, social media, on Facebook, on Instagram. Uh, you could go to our YouTube channel and subscribe. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're watching this podcast and you're enjoying it, rate, review. Uh, share with your friends. Uh, it goes a long way. So thank you so much. And if you want more, head over to Patreon for a bonus episode each week and additional content. And that's at patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod. Uh, you can check out Oteil's upcoming live dates at Oteil. Is it Oteilburbridge.com or just Oteil.com? Just Google Oteilburbridge.net.com. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And you could, uh, if you want to see some stand-up, you could check out MikeFenoya.com for upcoming dates. So thank you, everybody, and uh, we're excited to be back with you. Hey, 
It's so bizarre. I've been a, a fan of the dead for uh, for the dead for 30, 40 years, and um, to have the tables reversed on me, it just it feels strange. Um, but I, the, when I, we first met Otil, I, I have this story. I was you know when Chris invited us backstage to meet you. On the way, I told Pam, no, no matter what, don't ask for selfies, right? We don't want to be fans. And we walked in the door at the trailer, and the very first thing he said, oh, my God, Paul Stam is going to take a selfie. So, <laughs> <laughs> Pam looked at me with an eye roll, you know, so like, oh, my God. She, I didn't need to tell her that anyhow, by the way. She reminds me that frequently. But it was really funny. I was a, it's a great example of me sticking my foot in my mouth, so I, I really... <laughs> I learn every day from my faux pas. So. Oh, so do I. And my favorite one by far was when you guys came to the conference in Miami. And um, <laughs> I basically was uh, spent most of the day with, of course, you know, Paul and Pam are like the Beatles there, you know, so everybody's handing me their phone going, hey, can you take a picture for me? <laughs> you know? And Paul, you were cracking it up like, sorry, man. I was like, no, I love it. First of all, I'm glad it's not me. And second of all, it's so cool to like be on the other side of it. So that was such a kick for me. It was amazing because only two or three people like looked at, did a double take of you and me and you and me. And, and then it was like, What's going on here? <laughs> so that's true. There was there was two or three people that actually were like, "No way!" They thought yeah. we had dosed them. <laughs> Am I seeing what I'm seeing? <laughs> oh my god, it was such a kick for me. What was the name of that conference? That was I can't remember now. It was Wonderland. 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 That's yeah. it in Miami. Yeah. So uh, super cool. And then seeing you guys, you know, always at the shows. So oh, I think we're, we're all honored to be thought leaders in these really critical times. And we all have messages of hope and um, really fostering the importance of diversity, the importance of um, biodiversity is key to our ecological and psychological health. And I, I think that our, our joint messages resonate with people when they realize that, you know, we can together co-create a better future. And I think that's all based on collaboration, respect, kindness, and respecting of of uh, who we are and what we're doing. So we all have different threads in the fabric that we're weaving to create a better reality for our descendants. And only collectively can these threads be woven together. Yeah, well, thank you for coming on our humble podcast to help us do exactly that. Uh, Pam, tell me, how did you guys meet? Because when I the last time I was looking at you guys sitting on the couch together, here was a thought that went through my head. I was like, these two people are so earthy. Like I could see you both with no clothes on, just sitting on a tree in the woods. Or, <laughs> but you're also like super, uber smart. And then uh, you know, like, and you're also you know saving the world. I think, God, these are the, this is what the future looks like. What an amazing couple. Like, so I just am interested, like, how did you guys meet? <laughs> Definitely not naked on a tree in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Would have been more interesting. <laughs> but we didn't know you had cameras. So. <laughs> Oteal's everywhere, guys. 
No, you know, the universe is strange sometimes, Otil and Mike. It's, it's um, I, I'm like, as you know, I'm a physician and I had this one rare week off um, many years ago and I had always wanted to go to Hollyhock and Hollyhock is kind of like Ethel end of the North. And um, I opened up the Hollyhock catalog to see what was playing, like what was an option to go, what courses were happening. And there Okay, was- let me, can I stop you real quick? What? For people that don't know, because I know what Esalen, I'm assuming you're talking about Esalen Institute. Yeah. Can you yeah. explain this to those that might not know what Esalen or Hollyhock is? Absolutely. So um, Esalen, geez, I don't know how long it's been going for decades. It's a, it's a, it's a re- kind of like a retreat learning center um, in California. And Hollyhock is similar on Cortez Island, British Columbia. And uh, they're both uh, institutes that provide very advanced, uh, progressive programming. So that's where you would have first had, you know, stuff around meditation and mindfulness and yoga. And, um, you know, they tend to be on the the leading edge of, of, you know, human wellness and health. And so Hollyhock does something similar on um, Cortez Island that, you know, they have a lot of mindfulness mindfulness, uh, programming, retreats. Uh, health, food, you know, uh, climate, social ventures, stuff that really is about, you know, doing things better in this world. And so Paul's been teaching a program there on um, wild foraging of mushrooms for... 1988. 1988. Nice. Yeah. And this, this program just happened to be available on the one week that I had open. And I went to Hollyhock to go forage for mushrooms at Hollyhock with Paul and his teaching team. And we just became good friends. It was more to the story. <laughs> because of Pam, <laughs> Pam uh, we live on a remote island in Bethlehem Samba. Pam lived in a more remote island, about 100 miles north of here. And she's been a permaculture gardener for a long time. And I was advocating the use of wood chips for mulching um, in the garden. And there was a narrative, a false narrative, by the way, that if you use wood chips, you would uh, rob nitrogen out of the soil. And it's kind of, it dilutes nitrogen if you mix wood chips into a compost. But ultimately, wood chips and mycelium create nitrogen and increase the nutrition of the soil. With nitrogen fixing bacteria, the mycelium preselects, and, and mycelium eats nematodes. And so there's all these uptakes of nitrogen forces once the ecosystem starts growing. So initially, yeah, wood chips don't have much nitrogen, but as it saprophytizes by mycelium decomposing it, then it becomes this very rich nutritional soil. And 12 inches of wood chips will become one inch uh, of, of soil in one year. And wow. so I was advocating this, and Pam shouted out in the middle of the class, it's true, it's true. <laughs> I've been <laughs> eating wood chips for mulching in my garden for years, and it suppresses weeds, and it makes the garden. I just fell in love with her intellectually at that point. She agreed with me. <laughs> so it wasn't two people naked on a tree. It was more a teacher-student vibe, Oteil. You were close. Well, well <laughs> adults, consulting, adults, of course, yes, yes, collegiate, collegiate, no power dynamic there. And all. <laughs> and no, sure in all the ways it's supposed to. Yes, I'm not sure what that says about me having a male ego that <laughs> finally agrees with me, right? And so, but anyhow, but she had, she had much more practical experience than even I did, and I was impressed. And so, I actually became her student. And ah, so that's awesome. It, 
we co-collaborated on this idea, but then we got into the details and I realized, wow, she's far more experienced than, than me and she has practical wisdom. And then physicians, you know, I think come to health, whether it's human or ecological, from a much more analytical point of view. They really yeah. want to see real world outcome. They just don't want to see uh, people philosophizing. Uh, they want to say, okay, well, that's interesting. Now show me the proof. And yeah. And uh, that's what Pam had. She had the proof of the concept that I I was a collaborator on. Let me put it up. <laughs> my, my wife is a nurse practitioner, and uh, she works in cancer now. And um, it's amazing to see her even in the garden, mm-hmm. how she brings her field and her daily work to caring for plants and the diligence and the, you know, regiment and the patients really where I'm like, ah, that, that plant's dead or that one looks good. She's like, Nope, I know what, I know what to do. Repot it, you know, fix it up. And so she does bring a whole other element to the, to the team for sure. So I know what you mean. Things can come back to light. They can come back from the dead. (laughs) (laughs) I think I was still right. Like my third, eye would still see, you know, wild mushroom forager, permaculture. That's why I was getting the naked on the log thing. Tell you, I didn't think there were cameras around. I don't know. <laughs> we, so are Paul, naked, we are naked in the woods many times. So I'm sure. I'm not. <laughs> well, That's Paul, the you beauty ta- of the Pacific Northwest. That yeah. you know, it, it's kind of a given. You know, Paul, you were talking at the top about Pam's research. Pam, let us in on all the latest and greatest that you're into. Well, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff. And first off, um, it's a team. It's always, it's a massive team. It's the Roots to Thrive research team. We have wonderful 11 researchers that all just work together beautifully, um, really in service to the patients. And so we have quite a few uh, research projects going on right now. So um, we have our end-of-life patients. So we have our psilocybin for end-of-life which is awesome. So 13 new patients have just started in the program. And what we do is we really follow how they're doing, you know, how they all have end of life distress related to a palliative care diagnosis. And we're following them through. And the really amazing thing is that um, we've had 40 plus patients go through the program already. And of them, all palliative, and of them, only three have passed on, which is remarkable because these are wow patients. So, You know, there's something about a well-done psilocybin uh, session done within a beautiful, caring, beautiful ceremony with a team that really cares and loves, like truly does love the patients and takes good care of them. Um, You know, these patients are doing well. They're they're returning to a joy of life and being with their friends and family. And, you know, a a common phrase is like, you know, I'm not worried about dying anymore. I'm living. And so, you know, we've got 13 new patients, like I said, going through. And then in the fall, um, all of our new psilocybin patients will be in actually a clinical trial uh, so that we can then publish on the data. But we have already got such great results. So that's one of the reasons that we're doing the clinical trial. And then our other, our other arm of our program, we, um, we work with PTSD with um, a ceremony with psychedelic-assisted therapy. And we have a 92% success rate in 12 weeks for PTSD which is Man. phenomenal. So we have a, a firefighter cohort going through in September 
again, because, you know, our firefighters, all of our first responders, they work their butts off. They come into these professions as heroes, like pretty well-grounded people. And then the traumas layer on. And then, you know, they end up with legitimate, real PTSD. And it's really hard for them to get the care and help they need. So we're doing this clinical trial to prove once and for all that these psychedelic therapies help so that our first responders and our frontline healthcare workers can get funded and get the therapy and the treatment yeah. that they need so that they can, you know, get back to work and get back to their family. Would you be able to um, walk the listeners through uh, maybe some of those first step processes as it relates to defining PTSD, uh, classifying as PTSD, and then going through this treatments mm-hmm. afterwards, retaking that assessment? That's a huge part of it that I don't think a lot of folks uh, know about. Yeah, well, it's an inclusion criteria for our program. So people are referred by their their physicians or their psychiatrists or their psychologists into our program. And these are people that have generally treatment-resistant PTSD or treatment-resistant depression or anxiety. So they have, they've been doing counseling. They've tried medications. They've tried other therapies already. And if they were well, they wouldn't need our program. So there are certainly people that do get well from these other therapies. And then those that don't get well, then by, they've already been assessed. They've already have a diagnosis. And then they, at the beginning of our program, they also then we go through all these validated healthcare, mental health assessments to ensure that, right. that they actually do still have a diagnosis. They meet with our, our psychiatric nurse and our psychiatrist to make sure that, you know, we can safely have them in the program. They do our medical safety to make sure that medically they're safe to be in the program. And then once we're in the program, it's a very beautiful community group ceremonial process that really helps rebuild that the foundations of human wellness, you know, not like, you know, pause practices, meditation, exercise, good food, good community, good connection. You're, you're worthy just by being alive yeah. for wellness. And then they have their, they come together as a group and have a psychedelic session all together as a group, which is amazing. And then, and uh, yeah, the integration. And so, and then at the end of the program, they do all the same assessments that they came into the program with. And, yeah. that, and those are the numbers we see. We see massive reductions of depression, anxiety, their work life, um, appreciation for their work in their life goes up to like 92, 93% of who yeah. gets that in work life, right? Like, <laughs> uh, and then their PTSD, 92% success rate in, in maturing PTSD. And these are, like I said, people that have already gone through a lot of therapy. So. Yeah. Those are amazing numbers. Just mm-hmm. like, so you said something, pause practices. What is that? Oh, pause. Well, we call them pause practices, but a lot of mindfulness, like really helping people drop into that parasympathetic space, like where you're totally relaxed, flow state, you know, you know, you've been there many times with music, I'm sure. And so whether that's meditation or, you know, four, seven, eight breath work or anything that can just really get us out of fight, flight, flee, freeze, and just drop in into that space where we're relaxed. Yeah. Everything so it, is, yeah. Any path you choose just to pause, mm-hmm. just to take a break. Yeah. It could be like, go kick a soccer ball. Absolutely. Walk in the forest. Yeah. Sit on a bench, hug a tree, play it, play. Um, um, I feel like my kids give me that a lot. Or I take them more now, like, it's like, Daddy, pay attention to me. I'm like, you know, you're right. And I just put everything aside. And then 
but it helps me. <laughs> so maybe that's my, I was doing pause breaks and I didn't realize it. Kids are amazing for that. They're in the moment. Like they're down on their knees looking at an ant. Like how often do you do that as an adult? That's my son all the time. Like I have a fear of dead things and I'll see him laying on the, um, at the pool, just laying there for like 20 minutes. So I go out and it was a little dead lizard and he picks it up. He goes, look, dad. But he was just staring at it for like 20 minutes. I thought, man, that's everything. He's curious. He's alive. He's happy. He's totally winning. Pause break. Let <laughs> me stare at this dead lizard. Yeah. Dead lizard yeah. therapy. Othiel, I've been in observation. As most people know, Othiel comes out on stage with these amazing graphics on his face, typically <laughs> white, white dots and spirals. And, you know, I've been around a lot of performers and myself. I have my own practice before I go up on stage. All of us are nervous. I have never met a performer who what who's good, who's not nervous, right? Um, and, Otil, you kind of get into this space uh, where your face is being painted. And I realized, boy, any, you know, in the next few minutes, he's going to go up in front of the stage of 50,000 or more people. He's going to perform... Um, and you're just totally into this Zen space of having your face lightly touched with a paintbrush. <laughs> and I thought, this is his key. This is how he gets into mm. his pause state, you know, this is that practice of just, you know, tuning in and relaxing. And um, then you go up on stage and just knock it out of the park. So I'm going, <laughs> okay, now I know his secret. He's also practicing. Part of well, you art. know, <laughs> that didn't happen till this tour, like, uh, Jess, my wife, had painted my face uh, on other tours before, but it was never like like I committed to doing it every night this year. And then my wife couldn't be there. So Bob's daughter, Chloe, volunteered to help me do it. And I have terrible, terrible stage fright. Always have. Stomach gets really bad about two hours before it's time to go on. And then just gets worse up until about the second song or halfway through the first jam or whatever, you know, and getting my face painted forced me to be still. And it was the greatest thing because it puts you in a very meditative state. And it's the first time that I've ever like centered down that far before every show. And I went out calmer and it really, and then like the yin yang of it was crazy. Cause then it was like an explosion, like, ah, but yeah, that that was my secret. This tour, I wish I had it for the other tours too. <laughs> you know? And seeing you guys, uh, and man, oh, I know we're diverging off, but we got to talk as a memory just came into my head. And as your McCalkinen says, life is all in the tangents. But looking up and seeing you guys and Doblin and Snow Raven just kind of made my mind explode. <laughs> That was really cool. I wish I could have been out there in the audience with you, you know? Well, you saw us out in the audience. Huh? Wow. Well, mm -hmm. I saw you saw that you sent me the picture. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay, and yeah. I was like, oh, I would love to be there with you guys. <laughs> that was so cool. Yeah, it was so fun. It was... Like that's. Go ahead. No, no, my fault. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to, you know, one of the things, too, is that it's such a diverse audience. You know, it is so fun. Like, when you look around, you just see so many kind people. 
being having a good time nobody's like pushing or shoving each other away there's so there's like young kids there all the way to people that you're like how are you still walking <laughs> you know <laughs> you know uh and it's just it's such a kind kind space and to have like so like in all of us that were in the same area like just such a mix of people having such a good time together well at my I was at the Eugene shows, I mean, I don't know, 15 years ago or even longer. And um, my son was, you know, 14, 15 years of age. It's just at the age that he wanted to experiment. And, you know, dad's saying, no, no, you know, you're too young to do psychedelics. You hold off, wait till you're 18. We'll go in the woods. We'll go on a mountaintop. We'll do it together. Um, he wasn't listening. And so <laughs> if Paul Stamets was my dad, I'd be like, really? <laughs> So he, he disappears from our family, our family pod. It's like, you know, we go through the second set and the end of the show, and I, I can't find them. And then the whole stadium empties out, literally. We're the only people in the stadium. Oh, no. Where is our son? And so oh, then finally no. got a hold of the medical tent and whatnot. And they go, oh, yeah, you know, we go talk to him. And he did a massive doses of LSD. But in the meanwhile, we're looking for him. And the narrative that we heard from people over and over again, don't worry. This is a dead show. Yeah. We're a community. He will be taken care of. Don't worry. And I'm like, I'm very worried. I can be looking for hours. And, and he said to me, he goes, yeah, I was laying down and this big red cross was over my head. And it was very religious, you know. I didn't really know what to make of it. Yeah, it was in a medical tent. <laughs> and then I was like, so true. So great. The dead community took care of him, right? So the parents were having the worst time, right? As, as the kid, he was having a great time and he was loved and yeah. taken care of. And so. It's always the one that gets lost that's having the great time. <laughs> Everybody else is, you know, I remember New Year's Eve 99 into 2000, Fish played at a Seminole Indian Reservation in Florida. And we all walked in together. They played from when the ball dropped until when the sun came up. And we were walking in and my buddy just all of a sudden disappeared. And I'm with his new wife, or his girlfriend at the time, now wife. And she's looking for him. And all I could say was, we're all in the same playground. We're all in the same sandbox having a good time. He's just somewhere over there and he'll find us. And sure enough, three, four in the morning, he just came prancing over and we, we pulled it together. But yeah, it, 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 we all, we have to treat it and remember that. Like we all, we, we chose to be here. We're all here together. Mm -hmm. It is that great scene. If you're going to get lost anywhere, that's the place to do it for sure. <laughs> it reminds me of my family uh, at Meow Wolf. <laughs> oh, we were there right after you guys after the the maps yeah. conference and uh we were i took my kids so i hadn't seen them in weeks like six weeks or something I took the kids to meow and of course nigel's eight and kavi's five so nigel just takes off he's so fast like i, I don't even know if i can run him down anymore and I kept getting so nervous because it was so crowded. And then right when I would freak out, he'd come around the corner. And you know how they have it designed where there's no maps. And I finally told my wife, I was like, it's cool. They have it designed like right when you freak out, you're going to like run. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. 
Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Back into him. It's just like a ditch. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, and sure enough, man, we had the best time. Man. So great. <laughs> We're going to take a quick commercial break and uh, everybody stay with us. We'll be right back after this. Let's talk about, I missed it. I was in New York with Dead and Company, and I wanted to be in Denver so bad. Oh, tell me, uh, how was that for you guys? Well, well, the analogy I make, you know, I've been involved in this also. I've been seeing, you know, since I was 14. But really, um, I, I got a DEA license in 1977. I can grow, sell, I've been collected, et cetera. I was strictly compliant uh, legally. I adopted the phrase, nature provides, I don't, and I never violated that. Um, and then I just recently got a DEA license. I passed my background checks. <laughs> Pretty amazing. How did um, you do that? <laughs> just kidding. Congratulations. <laughs> but the, um, I, I, the analogy that I, I make is like you're like a surfer and you see a swell coming across the ocean. I'm, okay, well, I'll get on this swell and this little wave and you're paddling, you know, diligently and 
the swell gets a little bit larger and a little bit larger and you know oh this is going to give me a pretty nice wave to surf on and the wave gets larger and larger and pretty soon it becomes a tsunami and you go holy shit what am i what am i what am i you know what am i on and that's what the the it feels like a tsunami of interest and with that is the is the yeah. good and the precautionary and that's something that i think we all need to be careful in establishing well-defined guardrails in the sense of not confining you but preventing you from steering off the path and having a wreck you know um one or two highly publicized bad experiences could set back research for decades that could benefit literally tens of thousands of people so absolutely it's really important that we are very careful with these powerful mm -hmm. medicines um they are very helpful for treating people with uh, mental challenges and diseases and um, ptsd and trauma all those things yes but i think they're also very helpful at preventing trauma mm -hmm. Preventing, mm -hmm. yeah. preventing violence. And some of the studies that I'm particularly fascinated by is the association of psilocybin use is a statistically significantly related to reduction to partner-partner violence, to criminal behavior, antisocial behavior. Um, so then you think about that is that when people have these profound personal experiences, um, they become nicer people. So I believe that psilocybin makes nicer people. And I think Oh, it's yeah. important that we address all these people who suffer from these tremendous challenges, which we absolutely need to treat. But wouldn't it be better in the future if they never even had these problems? So I think prevention mm -hmm. of disease, prevention of, of crime, reduction of addiction, alcoholism, tobacco use, opioid use, um, all these benefit society and the return on the investment. And this is why it's interesting that politically conservative people are really supporting psychedelic research for veterans, uh, for other for law enforcement officers. There's a major push. And at the conference, Rick Perry, yeah. the former Republican governor of, of Texas, he invited an Iraqi soldier to come visit him who is suffering from PTSD and nothing helped him. And he witnessed him uh, take, you know, change from taking psychedelics. And he was only supposed to spend the night. And he left, I think, two and a half years later at the governor's mansion. So Rick wow. Perry saw this in real time with a person that he had a tremendous respect for. He actually, I think, visited a veteran's hospital and met this person in the hospital and befriended him. So when, when you have a conservative person like that, realize that this is a good return on investment for society, if these things are non-addictive, um, one or two experiences can radically change people's lives where these other pharmaceuticals have not been, uh, they kind of dumb you down, they lessen your reactivity, but they also lessen creativity. You know, they yeah, lessen they the... Numb you out. Yeah. yeah, so mm -hmm. this is why I think these are unique medicines and we all have a very important sacred and professional responsibility to maximize benefit and minimize harm. Well, they've been like, you know, feeding off the same propaganda that we have for how many years? 50 years now, you know, since Nixon or whatever. I mean, you could hardly blame the conservatives there that way anyway. <laughs> you know, And then you like dump 50 years of just total propaganda on top of it. <clears throat> but like you say, mm -hmm. you put a specific face on the problem and then it's different, mm -hmm. like. Dick Cheney's not against 
gays and lesbians because his daughter's a lesbian. He's like, sorry, you're, you're going to leave me out of that one because, you know, my daughter's mm-hmm. a lesbian. So we, I'm, I'm glad that this thing could cut across like that because it mm-hmm. needs to, especially now. Think of all the PTSD everybody has just from the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I, and that, that was the, one of the things about the conference that was so interesting. There was. You OK, Mike? I'm fine. Yeah. Is everything OK? Can you hear me? Oh, yeah. I thought you said something. And then I think now you got a delay on you. <laughs> Sorry. No, I was but just waiting. Ahead, I didn't want to interrupt. But go ahead, Pam. OK. I- what was so um, also unique about the conference, I mean, it was 12,000 people. And I think, you know, MAPS had an epic, epic event to plan. And, and around, they did unprecedented number of scholarships and, uh, you know, access. They really went over as much as they could to make sure that they were covering the cost of, of people that could not otherwise afford to be there to make sure as many voices were heard. They had so many tracks. Like one of the biggest complaints people had about the conference is that there were so many tracks and that there would be four things going on at exactly the same time and you couldn't get to it. So there might be a clinical trial and an indigenous voices and culture and and therapy all going at the same time. So it was it was really big. Thank goodness they're gonna start releasing some of the recordings. But the other part that I think was so um, well done about the conference is they had this place called Deep Space. And it was the artists, like the artist space. Like that's what I love about psychedelics. Like certainly they're fantastic for helping all these challenges, mental health challenges, physical health challenges. But then there's this whole other part of the artistry and the beauty and what, like what, what, you know, the most creative people in society bring to make our lives beautiful and joyful. And so there was this deep space place where, you know, there's all these visionary artists paintings and there a tea room where you could sit and have listen to music and there was um gong meditations going on and then singers artists people that were singing that's where we saw snow raven sing um and they, they just really you know didn't say like this is these are just about treatment but this is about whole human health and so they had this other area and they had this beautiful yurt that was set up with the jungle in it that you could just sit and be like literally in nature in the middle of a conference. Yeah. And, you know, I would love to see more conferences do that, that really nourish that art artistry of us. A lot of the, uh, a lot of other cultures have people to kind of, uh, shepherd you through your psychedelic journey. Do you think a governments are warming to the ideas of embracing those people and or their traditions or maybe modeling something after that? I think we're kind of co-creating something new, Otiel, um, because like, when you look at, um, you know, in, we have a university program and we have a lot of Indigenous knowledge keepers from around the world that speak to the students. And it's quite common in many of the medicine traditions that, in fact, most people in the community don't use the medicine that it is the, mm. the community's healer, the community's uh, medicine person. And quite often they don't even consider themselves the medicine person, but they're referred to as a medicine person. But that's the person who uses the medicine. And through that, they, they keep their community healthy. 
And now we're in this pace where we are all wanting to take the medicine without having that community structure. Yeah. So we're creating something actually new in a way. And I think government and the health and the regulators do want to see something that feels like uh, they always say that the two concerns are safety and efficacy. And I think we can really show safety. I think we can show a wonderful structure that holds patients yeah. first and foremost. It's done wonderfully in many underground groups. MAPS protocol is similar. The Roots to Thrive protocol is similar. It's all about safety for the patient and then and then the therapy. So I think we're creating something new. And I think if we really move thoughtfully and we really put the patient at the center and it's all patient-centered care, then I don't think I don't think the regulators will have a problem with it. You know, we the clinical trials that we're going through are all group therapy, are all and, and you know that the they're they're in ethics right now and they'll they'll come out the other end and we'll be starting these clinical trials in the months to come and it's all about the patient, first and foremost. What I like about the model that Pam and her team are exploring is they actually create a community. They have individuals who have a common destiny of, of imminent mortality. They know they're going to die. They're trying to reconcile yeah. their, their death, their pain of life, their parent, their, their family is also, you know, anxious and concerned. And, and for these patients to come together with other patients and realize they all have a commonality, they build literally a community of support in amongst themselves. That's really different, and I think a lot yeah. more economically um, practic practicable um, in that it reduces costs. If you have one person going in attended by four medical prof professionals for eight to ten hours, you can imagine the expense of that being very, very high compared to having a group therapy of eight people, and they do all this preparatory work on, on social media or on Zoom or whatever platform it is, so they have, and then they meet these each other, you know, in real life and th th three dimensionally, and so it really builds a foundation of a familiarity and trust, and then they have this group experience. And what I've always wondered is one of the problems that physicians and therapists face is after the patient, you know, has gone through their program, that they're no longer the patient. And so where's the support? They can't depend upon the physician or the therapist as much right. as before. So this community of, of patients then help each other. Mm -hmm. um, and that, I think, is, gives a lot yeah. more bandwidth to the therapeutic outcomes because uh, they have a support team. They have new friends. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I, th right. I think that's really amazing. And, and Pam has lots of stories. I love for her to share some of them. Well, I, I just think some of the cool things is like people come out of the pro, like they finish the, the official program, but they always get to stay in the alumni, but they go, they go on vacation together. Like they've created new friends. They've created new connections. Yeah. And that, I think really what, you know, we're not craving psychedelics. We're creating community and love and connection yeah. and meaning and joy. That's what we're, and, and the psychedelics are a tool to get there. But then after the, they don't need the psychedelics because now they got community and they've got people that care about them and love them. And like I said, they're going on vacation. They're going surfing together. They're, you know, they're, they're a whole family. And, it's, and they don't need us. And that's, you know, 
I'm, <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm thinking I never went to get coffee with anybody like in the waiting room while I'm waiting for Alexa Pro <laughs> for subscription or a, <laughs> I never made friends with anybody at a, you know, it, it's facetious, but it's like I, it, everything is so secretive and siloed and, you know, like. Uh, yeah, it's really I, I think it's a bullseye because, you know, the, the intentions are different. You know, mm-hmm. you're trying to build a community yeah. and the other model is to make money. Yeah. So you're really not even supposed to get cured because if you get cured, you're not going to need the pills anymore. You know, and with this, it's like if you get cured, you really don't need the mushrooms anymore. Well, that's it. I mean, they're anti-addictive by their very nature. Those of us who know that you do a high dose of mushrooms, you look at them the next day, you say, no way, I'm not pressing these for months, right? So (laughs) anti-addictive. It's called a Jeffersonian dinner, and there's uh, 12 of us came together, and we're tackling these big problems. And the surprising, and I I have to admit, I was quite surprised by this, but uh, the model that we as a group thought was very good with Alcoholics Anonymous, because these people come together again with a common purpose. They share their stories. They're yep. vulnerable. They trust each other. It's confidential. And Alcoholics Anonymous actually was founded by a person who the 13th step was LSD, right? So it's been right. very well, very well documented. But that, but this it's parallel to what Pam was talking about, having a community of people come together to be, you know, to share their stories, to feel human again, to f- have an extended family. And mm-hmm. it's a very successful financial model because so much of us volunteer. So there's Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, but I really think, you know... Um, there's Psychedelics Anonymous. Psych- there are Psychedelics Anonymous. There's Psychedelics Anonymous. Well, I, I think that's a model Is that there? should be further yeah, uh, expanded but, upon. But it's not, it's not because people have problems with psychedelics. It's people that have been in recovery, have used psychedelics yeah. to assist the recovery, and are now using the 12 steps in the recovery model. Now, who would have thought that you're using psychedelics Ed, yeah. for drug therapy would help you? Help you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're going to take one more quick commercial break. Everybody stay here with us. Come back for more Comes a Time. to ask both of you actually from a um you know i know that for instance like ketamine can be used in tandem with ssris uh for treatment um for like uh rapid depression treatment uh is microdosing i heard at the conference uh someone not not a presenter just someone that i was speaking with talking about how potentially microdosing w- in tandem with if someone's on a pharmaceutical, um, as like, there's a pill called Abilify that a lot of folks that who mm-hmm. don't take their psych, their, 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 um, SSRIs don't work as well. Right. So they take, it's like a booster. And a lot of folks were saying that microdosing could potentially be a natural Abilify, if you will. And then mm-hmm. that would in tandem maybe wane off. Is that anything that is, does that have any levity that that statement or was that just someone chatting with me at the conference 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the, well, that's actually what really drew me into the microdosing of uh, the whole idea of it, you know, many, 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 many years ago is having patients come to me who were microdosing psilocybin and said that it absolutely wiped out their suicidal thoughts and that, and then they continued and then they slowly would wean mm. themselves off their other medications over time, like thoughtfully and slowfully. So we, we see yeah. a lot of that and we hear a lot of those and we have collected a lot of those case reports. And I think people are, the nice thing about microdosing is it can be a very individualized process. You can do it very slowly over time. There's no rush to wean off of the medications. You can do it in, with, so you don't get the side effects right. of the withdrawals. And, and if it is a good transition, then people can monitor themselves over time saying, is my mood staying stable as I continue microdosing and slowly wean off this other medication? Or do they work together synergistically for me? Because these, you know, I don't like to throw medications out because mm. for some people, they are incredibly life-saving. Like for some people, SSRIs work yeah. amazing and SNRIs work amazing. And for and yeah. these, really yeah. figure, who, who are the people that do really well on them and then ones that don't, what are the other alternatives? So yes, on that. And then also, um, you know, LSD microdosing, like Doc, uh, Amanda Fielding has done a ton of work with Beckley Foundation on around this and microdosing LSD. So we have a lot of uh, mm -hmm. stuff on that and ketamine as well. You know, a lot of our patients in our program, they, as they get, they're better, but then they just need something and they don't, if they don't want to go back, then they're microdosing psilocybin or they might be microdosing very small amounts of ketamine. And the interesting thing is not like the SSRIs, they're not taking it every day. They might be taking it, you know, every second day right. or, yeah. or three days a week or in, in yeah. women. They might just be microdosing the week before their menstrual cycle, and then that's it. So, you know, do you want to mm -hmm. add anything to some of the data? Well, I, I, did, I was inundated with people's personal stories. A really common one um, was people were on SSRIs, which are not working for them, uh, started microdosing with psilocybin. Um, and by definition, microdosing is non-intoxicating. It's subperceptual. Um, and then right. was, uh, I had heard two or three times people microdose for about eight weeks and then they stopped microdosing and they were better. So the microdosing actually helped them get off of SSRIs and eventually seem to renormalize their psychological health where they no longer needed SSRIs or even microdosing itself. And I went, wow, this is like wow. organically changing the, the neurophysiology of your brain. Mm -hmm. Right. It's a totally it's resetting the, the baseline of the healthier, um, you know, persona. So yeah. I think wow. I, I think the it future just like modern know, life. I think the future mm -hmm. and from my perspective, you know, I have a phrase that we're all most of us are on the spectrum of healthy normals. Um, you know, whatever that means, whatever normal means, but anyhow, we're, we're yeah, not, right. <laughs> yeah, who's normal, but we're all on a spectrum. Let's agree, agree on that. But I, I think that agree, modality, I, I, I agree a million percent with that. Yeah. I think the modality that is likely to become very prevalent is a, you know, on your birthday or annually, one heroic dose of psilocybin, then chase with microdosing. <laughs> Uh, and then breaking, you know, taking a break, you know, seeing if you don't even need microdosing. But I think that annual, you know, deep dive, you know, into the <laughs> unanimity of yeah. universal consciousness, really important. 
Sure is. <laughs> you know, I've never, I don't think I've ever done like what's considered a heroic dose. I, I guess I should, how, how many micrograms would that be? Well, well we would talk about milligrams yeah. and then we talk about mushrooms, yeah. you would talk about or, grams. Uh, <laughs> yeah, five okay. grams. Five grams at one percent is equivalent to fifty milligrams of psilocybin. Most of the clinical studies are between twenty-five and thirty-five milligrams. So, fifty milligrams is 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 a twice the clinical therapeutic dose published in the literature. Typically, twenty-five milligrams, two point five grams of psilocybin is a journey, a deep journey. That's a pretty good one for most people. Um, five yeah, grams. Nice. So micro, micrograms is for LSD. Well, yeah. micrograms would be LSD. It's ten times more more active. So okay, so clear. that's what I, that's what I was getting. At, Not two grams of LSD. My, when I used to do my, <laughs> you gotta be when I used to do my tricks. <laughs> you gotta be good at the metric system here, folks. Don't want to make a mistake. <laughs> you don't want to do five grams of acid. <laughs> no, well, see, when I when I used to do it as a teenager, I was doing. I've learned this later after the gorge. <laughs> That I was doing about 50 micrograms of LS. I would always do like a half hit, basically. And that's, that was, that's good. That's I didn't range. see anything. It didn't feel heroic at all, you know? No. <laughs> when you do a, a heroic journey, you're on the floor. You're not moving. You're not moving. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, I guess I should do it one time before. Maybe for my 60th <laughs> birthday, if you like. There you go. Well, I, I yeah. think that, you know, psilocybin in particular has an incredible really bright future mm -hmm. well i mean the problem with psilocybin it's got a pr problem it sounds too good to be true yeah. right because yeah. if you if you heard this and not knowing <laughs> that there are clinical studies published you know in very respectable journals the journal of, of of the american medical association new england journal of medicine the journal uh, journal of psychopharmacology but if you had heard this not knowing that this was proven just think about it a one-time experience or twice you could stop tobacco smoking seven 67 percent of the people you could then uh, a one-time dose you could treat major depressive uh, depressive disorder you could stop drinking or stop binge drinking from one experience well we just covered you know tobacco nicotine alcohol, depression. I mean, it has a too good to be true, you know, reputation, which we've all been trained, you know, if it's too good to be true, it's probably not. But I would like to say there's always exceptions to rules. And it seems like psilocybin, yeah. so many check marks on treating as therapeutically beneficial for a wide variety of symptoms that all are related to neurophysiology neurological health mm -hmm. and maybe this is fundamentally changing us neurophysiologically to go back to the baseline to reestablish neurological pathways that are healthy and precede the calamity that caused all these other ramifications and our antisocial behavior and our yeah. self-medication so it just seems to turn back the clock in a sense right to get into that pre-state um, so it really gives you a second chance in life, I think. I think it's profound. I think so, too. I think, and, and, and you know, it even it, it, an analogous, uh, you know, you look at how much padding is inside of a football helmet now. You know, early on, they would 
run at each other and clunk heads and God knows how many jarring brain injury, you know, uh, events were happening uh, as children, not professional football players, hitting our heads against each other and what kind of damage we do, you know, and we take such good care of, you know, we pay someone to lift the hood and change the belts and change the plugs in our vehicles, you know, um, once a year, twice a year, go in for a tune-up. I think that's a pretty great idea, you know, uh, blow out that exhaust system and kind of, you know, once things stop glowing the way they should, I think it's time to plug back in, you know, but I I'm with you. I think that be able to go back and maybe undo some of that because what you're talking about too, with smoking, drinking, gambling, uh, stress that you, maybe you didn't even know you were still carrying mm -hmm. when you're with the right person in the right setting, you're available to access a lot of those moments. And I I've done both. And I, I think a lot about the psilocybin experience. I don't think a lot about the Lexapro experience, <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't have yeah. profound Lexapro moments, you know what I mean? So <laughs> no, no offense to Lexapro, but you know, yeah. <laughs> it's just, you don't, you don't have those life changing, like waiting room experiences, you know? So well, we it's have so important. much stuff in our life that I think has messed up our neurological health. Like That's just, I, mean, yeah. I think just a regular, beat the hell out of ourselves. Yeah, just life in the 20th century or 21st century. You know, mm -hmm. this vampire capitalistic system that we're in now. We got all the the uh, devices, and mm -hmm. you know, it, we're so unbalanced. And I know when I was going through addiction therapy that's kind of what i was thinking like dude when you were like eight years old you mm -hmm. didn't need any of this you didn't need alcohol you didn't need sex you didn't need you know certainly not when you're eight. you were fine <laughs> but but it's it, it, i know? mean it, it'd be just really nice if we could just really just say hey you know shit happens to us and how can we unshit ourselves in a way sort of you know yeah. like remove these yeah, layers exactly that's not a great medical term, by the way. Don't quote me on that. But, you know, like we have, we inherit it's our family. It's a great t-shirt. <laughs> Unshit yourself. It's <laughs> 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 um, But, you know, like we, we also gain stuff from our families, you know, like how were we brought up? Yeah. What was what was the primary traumas of our families that we, you know, what? how did our mom carry us in utero? What, what was going on there? And mm -hmm. we know this now about epigenetics and stuff we had no clue about how many decades yep. ago and now we just speak about it commonly and so how nice like i talked to a lot of uh fire chiefs and i say like how mm. nice would it be if we could have your firefighters on the day you hire them start our program and let's get rid of mm. all the traumas that drove wow. them, drove them to want to be firefighters because the there's a reason officers. people want to be heroes. There's a reason why people yeah. want to go to medicine, right? And how about yeah. if we say the day you get hired, now let's cure that. Let's help you cure that so you can proceed from a higher level. And imagine yeah. like the level of healthcare we would get. Imagine how how few police incidences we would have if police officers were totally oh healthy God. and happy yeah. and connected and how you know, how much better everything would be. Teachers would be like, we, like we have the right to wellness as Paul says, like the right to our own consciousness. And imagine yeah. if we could do it younger rites of passage, like we've lost our rites of passage. Like imagine yep. if parents had, 
you know, a psilocybin journey with their, you know, their children at a certain <sighs> age as a rite of passage. Imagine if as, instead of going that. drinking at 21, you have a psilocybin yeah. journey uh, as that rite of passage. And then, you know, maybe like women, when they go through menopause, another rite of passage, like there could be yeah. these beautiful things. And Rick Doblin talks about with MDMA, wouldn't it be beautiful if every couple could have a once a year MDMA session just to rebond, hmm. go of the layers, yeah. to find the love, rekindle that pilot light. You know, these are, yeah. you know, look back on yeah. this time and go, what the hell were we thinking making these beautiful <laughs> substances illegal? It's ridiculous. Yeah. There may be a, a foundational concept that, you know, mind over matter, and Dr. Andrew Wiles talked about this for decades. Literally. I always feel scoffed at by a lot of people, guys. but, you know, mind does affect matter. Uh oh, did we lose him? Oh, nope. I hear you. I think we lost you guys for a second. You froze up. You said, I heard foundational concept. Okay, I'll start again. I think there's a foundational concept here of mind over matter. And Dr. Andrew Wiles has spoken about this for decades. And now it's, you know, very much considered uh, to be uh, medically re relevant that your state of mind influences your immunological readiness, your immune health. And if you have, yeah. yes. you are, whoops. So, uh, um, so if you, these inflammatory pathways then can cause all sorts of damage, you know, physiologically and psychologically. And so you end up then self-medicating and it's a slippery slope and a spiral into greater despair because of self-medication. You're not treating the root of the problem. So if we can cure our minds, right. the mind-the-body connection, I think is quite relevant. You know, when people are, are happy and they're more creative and they're more creative, they're happier. When they're depressed, they're not as creative. Right. Uh, they're unhappy. And so there's a sort of a binary fork in the road here uh, in improving your health or slipping into a disease state. And I think this is where psilocybin gets you to that crossroads and say, go in this direction. Be happier, be more creative. Yeah. And this is where, you know, it's been well established that depressed people have a depressed immune system. Um, and so they have less yeah. than uh, right. better possible outcomes. Mm -hmm. So all this being said, I, I think there is a lot of, of merit to looking at improving the mind, improves the body's health. Yes. Couldn't Man, agree more. I always feel so much better after talking to you guys. <laughs> really want to thank, thank you, you so guys much. so much for joining us. Yeah, this has been incredible. Um, I wish we got to run into each other at uh, in Denver. Maybe next time for sure. Dallas. 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 Eclipse. Isn't that where Dublin? Is that where Dublin said the next big one is? I'm not sure, but I, I know. know that we're going to be at the the Eclipse next April 8th, and outside of Austin, Texas, we'll oh, see. Austin. That's what Austin. I was wrong. Yeah, that's I'll right. be there. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll be there. Well, this would be, be fun. It would be fun to do this again all in person. Yes, please. Then we wouldn't have to deal with uh, technology. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thanks for bearing with us on our first new platform. <laughs> but uh, bless you guys. Thank you so much for being with us. Y'all are the best of all time.
This is so beautiful because in the background, you occasionally see us look up because there's bald eagles flying back and forth in front of our window here. Ah, beautiful. God, that's so great. Say hi to them for me. We got to come to uh, Comes the Time, Cortez Island. Pantheon Media presents Comes a Time featuring Mike Fenoya and Oteil Burbridge. Executive produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Produced and edited by Eric Limarenko and Stu Silverman. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Comes a Time with Mike Fenoya and Oteil Burbridge. Be sure to follow the pod on social media, YouTube, and if you're jonesing for bonus episodes and exclusive content, go to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get on the bus. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.